so if you, so probably most of you recognize that uh, last week was Ash Wednesday. That Ash Wednesday is the day, it's kind of the kickoff day to uh, the celebration of Good Friday and Easter. And a lot of people said to me, how come you didn't do anything for Ash Wednesday? How come you didn't participate in Lent? And um, I would probably say that, and a lot of people are asking, because over the last two years, we kind of jumped in deep with Lent and Ash Wednesday, and we did a lot of Bible studies around and devotional around it, and it was a very good experience. And that was kind of a lot during COVID when we were doing things remotely, and I think it was very impactful. So this year, we decided to kind of focus a little bit different. I wouldn't say that we're not participating in Lent. It's just that this year, we're focusing more on the book of Esther and the Feast of Purim. So I think that's kind of taking a lot of our attention this week. But I know a lot of you are like to celebrate Lent and like to do scripture journaling. And just remind you, we have on the back table Susie Renzema's scripture journaling for, for Lent because I think that can be a very important part of Lent. But I think it's very important to also look at the book of Esther when we are uh, preparing for this Easter season. Because if you were around back in the days of Jesus, you would actually be celebrating. If you were a Jewish person back in the days of Jesus, you would be celebrating the Feast of Purim. You would not be doing Lent simply because Lent and Ash Wednesday, that didn't come around to about 300 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And I think it's important to study Purim in the book of Esther because that is a feast that all Jewish people would be doing while Jesus was alive. In every single feast that was in the Old Testament, as followers of Jesus, we are not obligated to participate in the Old Testament feast. It's not something that we are required to do now that we have Jesus. However, there's no reason why we cannot celebrate the Old Testament feast or, or, or to participate in them because they are a beautiful picture of God's cycle that he has for people. And the Old Testament feasts were always ways of relating to God and connecting to God and make sure that your life is in the right season and the right structure with God. And the whole purpose of the Old Testament uh, feasts were to gather people to God because God wanted to bless people. And I love the Feast of Purim, and I think it is so strategic that when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, that the Israelites would have been celebrating Purim. Purim is on our calendar. It's always a few weeks before Easter because the significance in the message of Purim is so prophetically linked with what the people needed to be prepared for as Jesus was going to the cross. And at the same time, when Jesus was going to the cross, the Israelites would have been celebrating Passover. And again, that is not a coincidence, but it's something that God was using to help speak to the people of what is this, what's going on and how do you really relate to it? So I want to talk a little bit more this week about what is Purim. If you were here last week, you know that I summarized the 10 chapters of Purim in my message is sort of a way to prepare us to pray for for the Ukraine. I think the book of Esther is this incredibly important book that we need to read and to study, especially when you want to give up. When you read the book of Esther, it's about the Jewish nation, and you're looking at them in the, in the book of Esther, and you think to yourself, why don't you just give up? You think to yourself, it might be safer for you to give up and run. But instead, in the book of Esther, you see that God has this elaborate plan going on behind the scenes to bring deliverance and to bring freedom for the Jewish people and to set them free. So last week I told the story, um, but 
And so I'm going to continue to talk about Esther, but if you weren't here last week or if you're jumping in online this week and you're like, I'm not sure what the book of Esther is, let me give you three minutes to give you a quick summary of the book of Esther. So the book of Esther takes place in the ancient Persia. Persia was the biggest empire in the world at that time. And over Persia, they had a king. He was not a very good leader. In fact, he was a poor leader. He was probably pretty good at drinking games, though. That is pretty much what he liked to do. He liked to party and to throw big parties. And at one of the big parties he threw, he got mad at his wife, who was the queen, and kicked her out, and then he had to hire, and then he had to find a new queen. But the whole story of the book of Esther isn't that the king was a bad leader. It's that the prime minister that he had was a very destructive man. So the prime minister at the time, his name was Haman, and Haman decided he didn't like the Jews. So he came up with this great plan to eliminate all the Jews, and he got the king to stand behind him and decree that every Jew would be killed in that, in that, in that whole empire in, about, in the next year. So the whole story is how God raised up Esther to be the queen, how he raised up her uncle Mordecai to speak to her, and a bunch of several eunuchs and about several assistants to the king and queen were involved in the story to see the Jews liberated from this decree of destruction that came against them. So even though there was a decree to kill all the Jews, because of Esther's bravery, and Mordecai being raised up to be the next prime minister, the plan to destroy all the Jews was, the plan was eliminated, and the Jews can now protect themselves. And it's a beautiful part of the story of Esther and the story of the Jewish people is that God always has a plan when there seems to be no other plan. And the second beautiful part of the story is that God always has a way to reverse what seems to be set in motion to cause destruction. And that's why often you look at the book of Esther and you call it a story of an unexpected reversal of events. And that is so often what our life is like when we start to follow Jesus. You begin to go down a journey of an unexpected reversal of events. See, the whole book of Esther is all about there was a curse against the Jews to kill them. And a decree was established that the Jews would be destroyed in the next year. But through God raising up people like Esther, that curse was broken, and there's an unexpected reversal of events. Instead of the Jews getting killed, they actually rose to a position of power. So it's a beautiful story. And so in chapter 9 of the book of Esther, um, once all the conflict is resolved. Esther is a queen, and, and now uh, Mordecai is raised up to the prime minister. They decide that there should be an annual festival each year to celebrate Purim. So you read in Esther 9, verse 28, it says, The days would be remembered and kept from generation to generation and celebrated by every family throughout the province and cities of the empire. The Feast of Purim would never cease to be celebrated among the Jews, nor would the memory of what happened ever die out among the descendants. So this Feast of Purim is this annual celebration that all the Jewish people would do to celebrate that God delivered them from Satan's plan of destruction. And so what would they do? You read in Esther 9, 19, it says, On that day, the Jews living in remote villages celebrate an annual festival and holiday on the appointed day in late winter when they rejoice and send gifts of food to each other. And then verse 21, which is not in your note, says, He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness by giving gifts of food to each other in presence to the poor. That is the whole idea behind Purim, and that is what the nation of Israel would have been doing in the weeks leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. 
See, the whole heart of Purim is God's divine intervention. But the interesting thing about the book of Esther is that the name of God is never mentioned once. Throughout these 10 chapters, you never see the name of God mentioned. There's no reference to God. His name's not mentioned. There's no mention of Jesus, no mention of the Holy Spirit. So as you can imagine, some people have looked at that book and they thought, why is it even in the Bible? Or some people even questioned, is that even a valid book because there's no reference to God? But see, this is the beautiful part of the book of Esther that I love the most. It takes faith to see God in the book of Esther. You cannot just simply look at the book of Esther and see God unless you have faith. See, the truth is for each of us, we go through our daily life sometimes wondering, where is God? We sometimes look at situations in the world and we say, where is God? Because I don't see his name. I don't really know if I see his work and I don't know what's going on. But the truth is, and that we see so clearly in the book of Esther, is that everywhere God is working, even though you don't see him. Everywhere in the book of Esther, you see this loving God, this God full of compassion, who is working behind the scenes, even when you don't see what he's doing. On the surface in the book of Esther, you may think, God's not doing anything. You might think, oh, it's just a, a, it's just a, it's just a coincidence that this is happening. It's just a coincidence that Esther was here at the right time, or Mordecai was here at the right time. It was just a lucky guess that Mordecai knew what to do. And see, often we'll look at our life in the same way and think, oh, that was a coincidence. Oh, I just had a good idea. But really, when you step back and you can see, no, that was really the hand of God working. And I think that's one of the reasons why it is so important to study spiritual gifts and especially study the power of gifts is so you start recognizing, no, that wasn't me, that was God. That wasn't me that had that really good idea. That was a word of knowledge that God gave to me. And that wasn't really me doing something. That wasn't a coincidence. That was a hand of God who has already been working on the situation before I ever got involved in it. See, studying the spiritual gifts helps us to see God more clearly instead of thinking it's just us who did something. So the story of Esther is just filled with these incredible things that are happening behind the scenes. Today I want to talk about one of those events in chapter 4. And I'm going to tie that into spiritual gifts. So in this chapter, in chapter 4, Mordecai, who again, that is the queen's, uh, her uncle, and he, he had a job, he was probably like in the city council. He wasn't part of the king's court, but he sat outside of the gates of the king's empire. And one of the days he was out there and he heard of the decree that went out to say all the Jews were going to be killed. And so what uh, Mordecai did, along with the other Jewish people who found out they're going to be killed, is that they dressed themselves in sackcloth and put ashes all over their body because they were grieving. As you can imagine, you would grieve if you found out your whole people group was going to be killed off in the next year. So some of the people that were inside of uh, the, the, the I was in a castle, what did they live in? What, what did he call that thing? And then their empire. I don't, I, I don't know, wherever, I should know that. I studied this last year. The, the place where Esther lived. So one of the, the assistants goes, what's that? A palace. Yeah, in the palace. Sam, you should have knew that one. So anyway, so some of the uh, workers, they go to Esther in the palace and say, hey, Esther, you, you have to know your uncle is outside with a bunch of his friends. They're dressed in sackcloth and ashes, and he's mourning and he's weeping. And Esther has no idea what's going on. She has no idea about the decree that was issued. So she quickly sends her servants and says, well, here, go bring him some new clothes and tell him to change his clothes. 
And I think that's kind of humorous because I think that's what we do sometimes when we find out a person is like, oh, they're grieving and they're lamenting. We're just like, here, just fix it. Quick, here's something to fix it with instead of finding out what actually is going on. So Esther sends her servants out and they, they go to Mordecai and say, here, your niece wants you to have some new clothes. And he's like, no, I'm not going to wear those. He said, I want you to go back and tell my niece this plan, that decree that's been established that's going to kill all the Jews. And I want you to tell my niece that she needs to go to the king and say, hey, you got to have some mercy on the Jewish people and let them go free. So when Esther hears that message from her, her servants, she says, no way am I going to do that. You go and tell Mordecai that I'm not going to do that because if I have to go to the king with that message, he'll kill me. So then, uh, so then one of the servants, it was actually the eunuch, uh, Hatek, he comes and he goes to Mordecai and says, uh, your, your niece says, no way. She says, I, I am not going to go to the king because he'll kill me. So Mordecai gives a message back to Hatek and he says this to him in, in Esther 4 verse 13. Mordecai says to Hatak, he said, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all of the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. Do not eat three days, nights, or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and everything away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So these are five incredible verses. You know, in verse 11, Esther's pretty resolved and says, there's no way I'm going to say a word. I'm not going to tell anybody because you know what? I will get killed. And five verses later, she completely changes her mind and says, I will do what you're telling me to do. And if I die in the process, that's not a big deal. And I think we all wonder what caused Esther to change her mind so quickly. I mean, basically, all that Mordecai said to her is that the only way for you to get out alive in the situation is you to tell the king. But why did that change her mind so much? See, I think the bigger question to ask right now is, how did Mordecai know that Esther needed to go before the king? And how did Mordecai know that God had a plan and that Esther's life would be saved if she went and told the king? After all, one scene and one verse, Mordecai is dressed in sackcloth and ashes. He's grieving, he's mourning. You would think that that man would be a picture of complete hopelessness. Instead, in this story, Mordecai becomes a man of incredible faith. That in the midst of all this calamity that's predicted for the Jews, in the midst of the trajectory of what's had going to happen to the Jews, Mordecai stands up full of faith and says, God has a plan. And Esther, you need to go to the king, and you need to ask for mercy, and when you do that, you'll be safe. See, the only way that Mordecai could know that plan is by the power of the Holy Spirit working in his life. See, I think what Mordecai experienced that day is what we commonly call a word of knowledge. 
one of the New Testament gifts of a word and knowledge, that Mordecai had special revelation from God to know that God had a plan to save the Jews, and his plan was that Esther would go before the king. Now, you go, you go to the um, gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. It's in your notes. It says, there are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversity of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversity of activities, but it's the same God who works in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one of us to profit all. And I put these numbers in here. I didn't rearrange the Bible, just to clarify. So the first it says, to one is given the word of knowledge through the Spirit, to another the word of wisdom through the same Spirit. And then it goes on to talk about all the other gifts of the Spirit. And today I want to talk about those first two on that list, the word of knowledge and the word of, of, word of wisdom. Now before I get into these gifts, I want to just say up front that sometimes these gifts are a little bit hard to understand, wisdom and knowledge, and simply because they're not referenced at other parts of the New Testament. Paul doesn't later on talk about it in Ephesians or Colossians. No, it's, it's brought up here in 1 Corinthians and it's never mentioned again. And so sometimes it gets a little frustrating because you're not really sure what do these gifts really mean. And so if you study spiritual gifts, you'll find a lot of people have different interpretations of what these gifts really mean because you're just trying to figure out with a lack of more information from Paul. And so um, a lot of times people can, you get, and it's easy to do, I do it all the time. You get word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and prophecy and discernment, all like you're not sure which is which one and which is the other one, and, and they all kind of sound like the same. So some people lump them together and just call them gifts of revelation. And that, that's probably safe to do because they are all revelation, but I think it's important to try to help define these gifts a little bit more. Because when you define them a little bit more, it helps you to see the different ways that God speaks to people, the different ways that God communicates to each of us. So we don't just expect God always to do it in the same way. We see different ways he does it. So as one of my seminary professors, otherwise known as my father-in-law says, he says, he sums it up this way, that a lot of people relate to this. Knowledge, the word of knowledge relates to the discovery of the truth. And a word of wisdom deals with application to life. So on one hand, you have knowledge, which is discovery of the truth, and wisdom is how do you apply it to life? So it's a definition that most people would agree on, that knowledge refers to truth and wisdom refers to application. So in the situation with Mordecai and Esther, it was a word of knowledge that Mordecai would know that God had a plan of deliverance, and the plan was for Esther to go to the king. And so Esther, she had a word of knowledge that they needed to call a fast. But then it was a word of wisdom for Esther to know the right timing to ask the king. Because you're here last week, I talked about how when Esther had to go before the king, but she had two opportunities when the king said to her, what do you want from me? I'll do anything you ask. And both those times, she didn't say anything. She knew it wasn't the right time. But the third time the king asked her, she gave her request. That is wisdom. When you know what to do with the information you have so you act at the right time. And so I believe as the book of Esther shows us how spiritual gifts operate even in the Old Testament culture. So I want to define these gifts just another layer a little bit deeper to understand a little bit. So I'm going to go back to my father-in-law's book where he says, the gift of knowledge is a special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to discover, accumulate, 
analyze and clarify information and ideas that are pertinent to the growth and well-being of the body. Now, I like this definition because this definition gives it open wider to a little bit. A word of knowledge could happen. God gives you, boom, a supernatural revelation right on the spot. One minute you didn't have the information, the next second, boom, you have a word of knowledge. Sometimes God will give you a word of knowledge through analyzing some information. I think this happens to a lot of cultural commentators when they're looking at the big picture, what's going on in the world, or maybe understanding a generation, Generation Z, you're looking at habits or behaviors of them, and quickly you understand something about that generation that you can bring to the the greater body of Christ to help that group of people. Sometimes you might get a word of knowledge. You might be at work and you're looking at a big old schematic and you got some big problem going on and nobody knows what to do and you're looking at the information and boom, you know exactly what to do. That can be a word of knowledge as well. God can give words and knowledge spontaneous out of the blue. You're driving your car, you're not even thinking about something and boom, you have an idea to you're studying a schematic at work and immediately you know what the solution is to a problem. So the word of knowledge is kind of a wide open how God can speak to us. So then you go to the word of wisdom. It says the gift of wisdom is a special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to know the mind of the Holy Spirit in such a way as to receive insight into how given knowledge may best be applied to specific needs arising in the body of Christ. Again, it's sometimes hard to understand the difference of these things, but I think the word of knowledge is best seen. It's wisdom for a situation that you're looking at. And then the word, and then the word of wisdom comes in and helps you be able to apply the information that you have in a way that you can solve a problem quickly. So again, you don't see these two gifts referenced in other parts of the Bible. But you do see Jesus all through the Gospels using words of knowledge and words of wisdom, especially even see the disciples. In your notes, I put into Matthew 9, verse 1 through 8. And in this passage, Jesus, it says, Jesus knew the thoughts of the religious leaders. He knew exactly what the other people were thinking. That's a word of knowledge when you have the ability to understand what somebody's thinking without you being told. In Luke 6, the same thing, Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees. He knew exactly what they're thinking. How would Jesus know that he was fully man? It's because of the Holy Spirit inside of him, he was able to have a gift of knowledge. And then in Acts 16, you see for Paul, he's being harassed by this young girl who keeps going to all of his meetings and just kind of heckling him in the background. And one day he receives a word of knowledge on what is causing her ruckus. And Paul understood that she was being tormented by a demon. So Paul stopped one day And through a word of wisdom, he knew to cast the demon out of her. So sometimes you can get a word of knowledge and you can get a word of wisdom all at the same time. But I think what you can see with these gifts is they're incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful to have this revelation from God. Because sometimes it does solve problems. But another thing that a word of knowledge can do is it can speak God's love and compassion to other people. If you get a word of knowledge about another person, it's just like the gift of prophecy. It's used to encourage a person, to love a person, to counsel a person, to build them up. So often, one of the best things that you can do to a person is you can say to them, hey, I've been praying for you, and tell them why. Have you ever happened that where you're just driving your car and you're thinking all of a sudden a person's on your heart, and you start praying for that person? 
I think in those situations, it's good to say to that person, you know, that today at about 1230, God put you on my heart and been praying for you. But then ask God, why is that person on my heart? Because that is so encouraging for another person to hear, you know, say, hey, you know, I was praying today and I just felt like you might be discouraged right now. For them to hear that God is actually so concerned about what's going on in their situation that he have somebody else pray for them is incredibly encouraging. It's also encouraging for you and I to know, yeah, we are hearing God and God is using us to minister to other people. So I think we all should be challenged to do that more, that when God puts a person on our heart, not only pray for them, but to ask God why and share with that person why God puts you on my heart. I mean, you think about Mordecai. When Mordecai heard from God that Esther had to go before the king, what if he would have said, ah, ah, what if I'm wrong? I don't want to say anything to her. What if I, what if I was wrong? If he was worried that he was wrong and he didn't do what God had called him to do, there's a good chance Esther would have been dead. He saved Esther's life by giving her that word of knowledge. He took the risk, and he was brave enough to even say that to Esther. You know, kind of taken on to Greg's point, even about how sometimes God will give you a word of knowledge or a discernment. Sometimes it might not be for the exact moment, but sometimes it is your responsibility just to pray something through. I think we've all seen, and I think probably most of you, when people think they get a word of knowledge and what it's, it's really, they got a word of gossip. And it really has nothing to do with a spiritual realm. Well, it has something to do with the demonic spiritual realm. But they think they're hearing God just so they can gossip about somebody else. And that's always a turnoff. We, we have to be very careful about that. When God, especially if he shares with us what some another person is thinking, that it's not to tell anybody else, but it's just to pray through it. And so why Purim? What does this all have to do with Purim? Why am I going back to Purim? And why do I think it is so important as a church and a community we really focus on Purim during this season? See, Purim is this constant reminder that we live by faith, that we don't live by sight. We live by faith. Purim is this constant reminder that we always live with the understanding that God is working behind the scenes. That even when things seem hopeless, they seem like, why even pray? that God is always doing something behind the scene. And Purim is always a reminder that we're not saved by our own efforts or our own coincidences, but we are always saved by God's divine intervention. And Purim is always a reminder that we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate a lot more what God has done in our life. And we need to give good gifts to other people and take care of the poor. Earlier, I read to you from Esther 9 about this feast that they would have every year and that during this time they would be celebrating, that they'd be having a big meal with each other and they would be giving gifts to the poor and taking care of the needy. And I think it's interesting that they would give gifts of food because so often in the Bible, food is a representation of God taking care of your needs, but it's also a representation of the Word of God. And that's why Purim is so important. If you go back to ancient Jewish literature, the scholars will tell you over and over that the heart of Purim is remembering the miracles that God did. And in the Jewish culture, the best way to remember 
is to tell stories about what the miracles that happened in the past. So for the Israelites, the best way to remember is to relive a past event. That's why these feasts and festivals they would do on an annual basis, they would relive and they would remember what God did in their ancestors. They would celebrate Passover hundreds of years before their, their, their relatives getting out of Egypt. You would still celebrate that decades later. Why would you do that? Because you would remember God's faithfulness from each generation. I think so often in our culture, we forget God's faithfulness prior to last week. It's so easy to forget what God did last week or the week before, and it's easy to forget what God did in my grandparents' life. In that Hebrew culture, you were connected to your ancestors. And what God did for your ancestors is a blessing for you today. We don't live that way in our American culture. We're not grateful for what God, the freedom that God brought to our ancestors and how that influences us today. But that's what God was reminding the Israelites to do. To relive your past events to see the faithfulness of God. And Purim is also a reminder to tell other people the good news of Jesus. See, it's no coincidence that Purim happened just a few weeks before the resurrection of Jesus. See, the Israelites would all been in the celebration of our responsibility is to go and tell. Our responsibility is to tell other people that God's always working behind the scene, that God always has a plan of rescue. And we all know from the stories when the day of Easter came, or the day of Good Friday came, and Jesus died on the cross, and they were all thinking, boy, our, our, our way of freedom's lost. But Easter morning came, and they all remembered, yeah, what happened on Easter is no different what happened in, in Persia. It's no, happen, no different from what happened in Egypt, that God always has a plan, and God always comes through. So the Feast of Purim was a reminder that God's working behind the scenes, that God has a plan of victory, that God is never fooled by the enemy. It's always a reminder that God has miracles to bring forward. And that's why I think it's important for us to celebrate Purim this year. I think for the last couple of years, we've been so isolated. We had to be careful. People weren't able to leave their home. Sometimes you weren't able to get with other people. And I, I know some people are still very cautious today. And, and you, need, if you, that's, you need to be if that's where you're being led. But I think in the last couple of years, we've kind of, we've kind of felt a little bit of a past to live in isolation. Or we felt a little bit of a past not to give gifts to other people or to take care of the poor or to tell the good news of what God has done in our life. And I think in this Purim season, as we're heading towards Easter, it's a reminder that even thousands of years ago, it was woven into the culture of the Hebrew people that you have a responsibility to tell others what God has done in your life and in your family's life. So, so we're going to do that. Because I think as many of you know that, you know, this last couple of years have been hard on this church. You know, it's been, it's been a little tricky being a Lake Effect Church. And, uh, you know, three years ago, the Sunday prior to COVID, I thought things were going great. You know, we had things, we, we just finished, we were right, right at about, we just finished our third year and seems, things seemed really good. And then COVID came, you know, we quickly lost our home at Grand Valley. But it's so interesting how God brought us to this facility. Some of you may have heard the story, but I'll tell it again because I don't know if everyone's heard of it. See, when we planted the church, Lake Effect, five years ago, quickly we, we realized we needed a place to do our midweek Bible studies. 
So before I discovered Crossroads would help us, I, I was calling all these different churches on the west side, and everybody kept saying, nope, nope, nope. And, and I'd drive on the expressway, and I'd see this church up here. And it's funny, I, I, I'd never been to this church, even though I'm from the west side. So one day I got off the expressway, and I, I drove to this church, and I thought, I'm going to ask these people, could we meet here midweek? And I got here, and I'm in the parking lot, and the weeds are literally up to my waist. So I'm thinking, okay, something's going on here that they're not taking care of the parking lot and the grass has grown. And I thought, is this church been abandoned? Are they no longer meeting here? What's going on? It was really dark inside. So I found their number on the internet and I called and I called and I called. And finally, I got through to someone and said, hey, we're a church. Could we meet here during the week? Nope, we don't let anybody rent here. And I thought, it's just kind of weird because it seems like, why not? And so I started to pray in the parking lot. I mean, this was like four and a half years ago. I'd, I'd come here and I'd pray that God would either revitalize this church that was here or he'd give it to somebody. And I always suggested he would give it to us. But I said, if there's someone else you want to give it, would you give it away? And so I would come here probably every week and I'd walk through this church parking lot and I'd walk around the land, and I'd be praying, God, would you revive this church, or would you give this church to somebody else? And sometimes Becky would come with me, and would, would sit for an hour in our car, and would pray, and would walk around, and would ask God this over and over again, and well, nothing ever happened, and we kept meeting at Grand Valley, and all as well. But then when we were displaced from Grand Valley, and it was the first summer of 2020, um, we were like, okay, we, we need to meet somewhere, and nobody's letting you meet anywhere. So I thought, well, I'll come to this church. Maybe they'll let us meet outside in the parking lot or in the yard. So I come here, and, and I got here, and I'm like, whoa, the weeds are cut in the parking lot, and the grass is cut. So I'm walking around, and, and suddenly the pastor from the Sudanese church, he comes out in the parking lot, hey, how you doing? He introduced himself. We, we talked. He gave me a tour of the church. And he told me that, the church that was here gave them the church. That the Wallen Congregational Church one day gave the church to the Sudanese congregation. The Sudanese congregation, they were looking for their own home. They were looking to buy a church. They had no money. And the Wallen people heard of the Sudanese and they contacted them and said, we hear you need a church. And so through, you know, Things going back and forth, they gave the church. And so, beautiful story. So, I obviously was happy because those answered a prayer. So, then Zachariah, we go to lunch, and he says to me, You know, we have been so blessed that somebody gave us this church. We want to share it with you so you can meet on our lawn as much as you want to have church. So, I'm like, Wow, that's a really cool thing. And they even cut the grass. So then we were meeting outside, you know, a couple years ago, and then it's summer, it's getting hotter, so Zachariah comes out one day and says, you know, why don't you meet inside? Start to meet inside here. So their service is at 11.30, so we're meeting at 9.30, and things are going great, and then one day Zachariah says, well, why don't we make a long-term arrangement? You can permanently be here. So we signed a contract, and so now this has been our home. So it's a beautiful story how even though through COVID, God put us in their location that we needed to be through strange circumstances. But as you know, that during that process, um, you know, several people are starting to leave the church because our kids' ministry was gone. And once we got in this facility, we quickly ran into restrictions of a word would not, the, our host church was uncomfortable doing kids' ministry. So 
we said, okay, you know, we're going to follow along. We believe God has called us here. So all of our people with little kids left. And I totally understand that. And, and that was discouraging because that we had built up a pretty good kids ministry when we were at Grand Valley. We had great, amazing teachers. All of our teachers were students at Calvin College. And we just had a good thing going. So it was kind of a hard thing to see here. But during that time that we couldn't meet, we, Andrew and Carly, you know, our missionaries in Nepal, they painted all of our rooms. So all of them, our rooms are ready. They're refreshed. They're stocked with toys. They're stocked with diapers. We're ready to go. And I think we're getting close to probably the students saying, yeah, let's get back to full nursery. So that kind of is this place where we're, we're kind of relaunching church. We're kind of redoing church. And, and that's an exciting place to be. It's a frustrating place to be because we were there five years ago, but we're here again. But I'm optimistic. And I'm optimistic because I think we have a lot of experience planting and we're going to do it again. But I think this time it's going to be a little different. I think last time when we planted Lake Effect Church, a lot of people came from other churches to start Lake Effect Church. This time I think we're going to find a lot of people who don't go to church, who don't know Jesus to come to Lake Effect Church. I think a lot of people will be coming from other churches as they hear more about our vision and our vision is more cast and we can now open all the doors and we can get back to kids' ministry. So I do think some people will come from other churches to sow into our mission, but I think in a lot of ways it's our responsibility to go and tell the good news of Jesus to fill this church with people that don't know Jesus. So in this next few weeks, as we are heading to Esther, or Easter, I think we're living in this season of Purim. We're living in this season of celebrating what God has done in our life, and then we're going to tell other people what God has done. All of you know the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It says, therefore, go and make disciples. That's what we need to do as a church and a community. We need to go and make disciples. Over the last couple of years, we've been getting prepared more and more. And as we're studying spiritual gifts, we're getting more and more prepared. So in these next few weeks leading up to Easter, I want us to really understand our spiritual gifts. So all of you are going to be getting one of these, not today, finding your spiritual gifts. It's, a, a, it's an accompaniment to the book Becky's dad wrote. And this is just a whole guide on discovering your spiritual gifts. It's this great little notebook I'll give to each of you just to kind of know your spiritual gifts better. I want people to participate in some other assessments to help us know where we fit in the Great Commission. And so we're going to continue to learn about our spiritual gifts, but I want us to be prepared with knowing what gifts has God really given us? Because he's given these gifts of the Holy Spirit to help us to spread the news. He never expected us to do it on our own. He expected us to do it for the power of the Holy Spirit. But what else we want to do in the next few weeks before Easter is we want to commission everybody. We want the opportunity to pray over each person that calls, that's part of Lake Effect Church. We want to pray over people between now and Easter. We want to commission you to go and tell. I think so often in churches we think, I'm probably not capable of going and telling. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not worthy enough. Maybe I got to study my Bible more to be good enough. No, you are a follower of Jesus. You are called and you are equipped and you are prepared. As a church and as a leader, we want to stand behind you and we want to anoint you and commission you and to send you out with the authority and the blessing of this church and say, go and make disciples.
So part of what we're going to do is we want to pray over each person. We'll get a group of people. We're going to pray over each of you. Maybe we'll have words of prophecy for you. Maybe we'll have words of knowledge for you, words of wisdom for you. But we want to send you with the authority and power of God. I think one of the best ways to discover your spiritual gifts I, I, is to other people help you understand yours. Sometimes in the context of a prayer or praying for somebody, the God will show one person another person's spiritual gifts. That's exactly what happened to Timothy in the Bible. Where Paul said to Timothy, don't forget about your spiritual gifts that were stirred up by the laying on of hands. When you lay hands on people and you commission them like they did to Timothy, suddenly sometimes your spiritual gifts are stirred up and you're like, oh, this is what I was meant to do. We want to do that for people. We want to send you out in power and confidence. But we're not going to send you out as individuals either. We can stick together as a group and we can be sent out. Right now we're working as a, right now to try to find a ministry that we can serve in. Some of you know years ago we were at Mel Trotter and that was really good for our church and then we had to put that on pause. And so as we're merging from COVID, we're trying to find another opportunity like that. Well, Mel Trotter right now is still uncomfortable about letting uh, volunteers in. But right now we're having discussions with two other ministries that take care of young adults experiencing homelessness. I don't want to say names yet because I have meetings this week and hopefully next Sunday I can tell you more about what we're going to be doing. But I don't want to get you too excited if it doesn't work out and, you know, COVID stuff is still going on. But we want to be able to connect with a ministry in the city that's serving people that are experiencing homelessness. What we would do at Maltrotter, we would go in once a month and serve a meal and connect with people and help people find Lake Effect Church. We want to be able to do that again. So the one of the organizations we're looking at is taking care of young adults experiencing homelessness, like, you know, the 18 to 24-year-old range and trying to figure out how could we do that? How could we go in maybe once a month or every other week and serve a meal and we're talking about could we come in maybe and do crafts in the evening with some of these young adults or maybe some Bible studies uh, with some of these younger people. Um, they, they've requested Bible studies like a smaller size. We don't want to just have, you know, 30 people in a room, but maybe we could do smaller ones where, you know, you might feel comfortable leading it alone or maybe with a friend and maybe, you know, you three or four other people in there. We're trying to work out how, what, how could we do that we would have a church in the community be able to serve off campus to some other people that need a family that need community. And we're not too small to do that. We're actually the right size to do that. And I think that could work. And I think it could work really well because I know a lot of you here and some of you that are watching online and some of you that are traveling right now, you would love to do that. And I think that would be a wonderful way to use our spiritual gifts to help serve this 18 to 24-year-old population that's experiencing homelessness, but they're now living in a shelter Hopefully next week I will tell you a very good report that this is going to work out. But we also want to take seriously again praying through our neighborhood. God has put us on this mercy hill for a reason. When we moved in here, we sent out postcards to all of our neighbors. We did this twice, just saying, hey, we're here. We'd love to pray for you. We developed some connections, not many. I probably now have a connection with two of the oldest people in all of Grand Rapids. It's a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. And they invite me over every now and then. I'll take out their garbage or I'll, I'll take stuff to goodwill for them. But, you know, we're meeting people. But, you know, we did that a couple years ago. And a lot of us would go prayer walking in the neighborhood and invite people to church. But during those two years, most people would look at Becky and I like, hey, that's nice. We're glad you're there. But we're not going to go to a church where we don't know any people during COVID. They're kind of scared. 
I think we probably met 10 or so people that, but anyway, so we want to do that again. So maybe, maybe the weather's getting nicer. You're like, Hey, I, I want to be part of that. Well, we'll send you out with teams. We're going to, we're going to figure out a few different streets that we can do in this neighborhood and, and just concentrate on some streets, but invite some of our neighbors here. I think now people are feeling more safe in the spring and summer. And the third thing that we want to do is we want to start going downtown Grand Rapids to find where people are hanging out and just to try to do some street witnessing. You know, maybe, uh, maybe uh, we'll just twist Greg's arm and say, hey, you come take your guitar and Chad, take your cajon and sit down in some block and see what happens. I know some of our people are just excited to do that. Just have some spontaneous, natural conversations. I think if you were here last summer, we had this group, um, our gospel gang, they were from Met by Love. Remember the young people that here, Jared was here and about six other people. That's what they do. They just get in their van and they drive around and they go park somewhere and then they go find people and talk to them about Jesus. So we want to do that. So we're just kind of thinking of all these different things that we could do as a church and a community now that the weather's getting nicer to reach out to go and tell. A lot of good things could happen. A lot of good things will be happening. I want to close with this. If you would go back to the old Jewish commentaries, these old Jewish rabbis would write these old commentaries, and they were, it was from the Talmud. You might have heard the Talmud. It's Jewish uh, commentaries. And if you go back and read what they say about the book of Esther, these old commentaries will say that the heart of Purim is remembering miracles. But if you go back to the really, really ancient Talmud, and when they use a little bit different language, they will say the heart of Esther is publishing the miracles. Other words of going and telling. That the book of Esther is about going and telling them what God has done in your life. And one of the old Talmuds I wrote, it said, we are obligated to retell the miracles of our survival to the people everywhere. That's what we're responsible to tell the miracles of our own survival to people everywhere. That is the book of Esther. That is the Feast of Purim that we are responsible to tell why we survived to everybody else. And that's why I think it's important to focus on the book of Purim because we're focusing on our responsibility to tell our stories to people everywhere. Amen? So God, I thank you for this Sunday. I thank you for this opportunity to share more from the book of Esther. The more of our responsibility to go and tell every, the people everywhere our stories of survival. God, I thank you that each person in this room, each person watching online has a story of survival that you want us to go and tell. Lord, you have equipped us, you have prepared us, you've anointed us, and now, God, I pray that you would send us with power. God, I pray for each person here that you would activate our spiritual gifts. But, Lord, also activate our confidence. God, I thank you over and over. You said to Joshua, do not be afraid. And, Lord, sometimes when we talk about going and telling, we get afraid. So, God, I pray that you'd set us free from fear and anxiety. And I pray, Lord, as we are in this Lent season of preparing for the resurrection of Jesus, that you would prepare us to be like the, like the disciples, that we would be ready to go and tell. God, may your anointing be on each and every one of us, Lord, to go and tell. 
And God, I pray that you would connect us this week to the right ministry that we can serve and partner with in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.